Uh, okay, before we jump in to our uh, text, our passage this morning, I'm going to talk to our kids, young ones, and let you know what we're going to be talking about, what the passage is going to be talking about. I'm going to tell you a true story. True story. Long time ago, my wife's grandfather bought a house in Canada. Y'all know where Canada is? It's way up north. It's above uh, America, and uh, and so it's uh, it's pretty cold. Um, and he bought a house on an island, in the middle of a great lake. And the only way to get to that house on the island is on a boat. Now, <clears throat> how cold do you think it gets in Canada in the winter? Freezing, so cold that the lake freezes over. Okay, so how do you think you get to the house, kids, in the winter? Ice skate. Keller said ice skate. You can walk on the ice, but that would be a really long walk. It'd be a really long ice skate. How else can you get to the house? Bobsled. (laughs) That's good. Snowmobile. Very good. You know what else people do? They drive their cars. They drive their cars onto the ice. So Roger, uh, his name's Roger Harrison, he is driving late one night from the store back to the house in the dead of winter. Lake is frozen over, and the ice starts to crack, and it keeps cracking, and he hears it cracking, and he can't do anything but keep going, and he keeps going and going and going until it cracks so much he falls through the ice. The whole truck goes under, and he is sinking to the bottom and he cannot get out. Finally, the water starts pouring into the truck. It is freezing, so cold that he starts, uh, he's going into shock. It's so cold. The car fills up with water, and he's finally able to get a window down and get out. And he gets up, and what does he hit? Ice. He can't find the hole. And he searches, and he searches, and he swims, and he swims, and just at his last breath, he finds the hole that the truck went through. He comes out, he emerges out, and there is his friend who is following him on a snowmobile. Gets him out of the freezing water, gets him on the snowmobile, and they book it to the house to get Roger warm. But they're not going to make it in time. They, they don't make it in time. Roger is so, he is literally freezing to death, so they have to stop. And they pull over, and they make a fire. They make a fire in the middle of, a, uh, of snow on that ice, freezing cold temperature. And that little fire saves Roger. It's not his awesome truck that saves him on that ice. It is not his awesome warm Canadian clothes that save him. Uh, It is not his friend that saves him. It's not that awesome snowmobile that saves him. Uh, It's not even Roger. And if you met Roger, he is like mountain man, like could do anything. Roger cannot save himself. It is this little fire in the face of all that cold and freeze that saves Roger. Okay, kids. Do you know what the gospel of Jesus is like? It's like, it is like a fire. The gospel of Jesus has the, it is like the power of fire. Um, Because what is the gospel about Jesus, kids? Throw it, just throw anything that comes to mind. What's the gospel about Jesus? The good news about Jesus. Rose again. What was over here? Salvation. What else? Salvation from what? What did he do? What did he have to do? 
He came and he lived for us and he died on the cross for us to save us from our sins. Uh, this is, and what was he? He started off just as a baby. He came down from heaven, was born as a baby, grew up as a poor carpenter. You know, he, he's in the middle of the huge Roman empire and he's nothing. And yet he lives for us and he dies for us and he's raised from the dead for us to save us from our sins. That is the power of the gospel. And what the world will tell you is, no, 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 Jesus is weak. Like you believe in Jesus? Like that's weird. Like what can Jesus do for you? Uh, he's not important. He doesn't do anything. And we say, no, he didn't stay dead. No, he actually died for us to save us. And he is alive right now. He is raised from the dead. And he's ruling in heaven. And like this world is a dark, cold place. And your only hope of salvation is Jesus Christ, who, who is the power to save you. That's what we're going to be looking about. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, kids, don't ever, you don't ever have to be embarrassed. You don't ever have to be ashamed. You don't, you don't have to feel like a weirdo uh, because you believe in Jesus. Y'all, it is, he is the power and the only power of salvation. So uh, we're going to jump into the Old Testament book of Zechariah uh, just to catch everyone up. Israel had been taken into captivity by the great nation of Babylon, taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. There's no more Israel. There's no more Judah. Uh, and then 70 years later, another world power comes along, Persia. They defeat Babylon. They free the Israelites. Hey, you can go back. You can go do whatever you want. Go live in our empire. Be, be quote, free. Uh, and, and you want to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple? Go for it. So you get a group of Jews, a group of exiles who go back and they start building this temple again in Jerusalem. They start building Jerusalem again. And they meet hardship. And they meet suffering. And they meet opposition. And they meet persecution everywhere. This is not going according to plan, they think. It wasn't supposed to be this hard. <clears throat> and so, they're crying out to God. God sends them the prophet Zechariah. With this message that he is with them. Now, the way Zechariah is organized, at least the first half that we're looking at, are these seven visions these night visions that are given to Zechariah to give to the people, to tell them that God is with them. We're in the fifth vision. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read this, but we're really only looking at a couple verses, but you need to know full context here. Uh, this is what the vision are. There are olive trees in this vision. It's a symbol for Jesus. It's a symbol for Christ. Uh, there's this oil in this vision. That's the Holy Spirit pouring from the trees into this menorah lampstand. That lampstand is the church. Okay, <clears throat> and what we're going to focus on today is this random stuff in the middle of the vision about whoever Zerubbabel is. Okay, there, ready? Let's jump in. <clears throat> this is the fifth vision. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there were two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. And he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall be, bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, 
grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth, the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so uh, we, we, this is our third time in this vision. We've done the olive trees. We've done the lampstand, uh, the oil. Now, uh, we're going to look at this Zerubbabel in a vision. Remember, when a figure or a thing is not defined or it's not identified uh, explicitly, it's assumed that the hearer, it's assumed that the, the reader, that, that we already knew, know who or what it is. Zechariah's friend, fellow prophet, same time, right now, uh, is a guy named Haggai. And he tells us in his book that Zerubbabel is the current governor of the Jews who have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild. Zerubbabel was a descendant. This guy is a descendant of David. But Persia, hey, go back and, and be free. Do whatever you want, except don't do whatever you want. Persia will not allow Zerubbabel to ascend the throne of, of Judah, to ascend the throne of Jerusalem and be the king of the Jews. Not okay. So Zerubbabel was not called a king. But he was the ruler, and he is tasked by God to rebuild the temple. Okay? So Zechariah, his contemporary, is Zerubbabel. Real guy. <clears throat> so now we know this random tangent about Zerubbabel is not a random tangent from the olive trees and this giant lampstand. Both are about the same thing from two different perspectives. It's about building the temple. So when God instructs Zerubbabel, his chosen ruler on earth, to build his temple, it comes with a promise that the enemy of God's people who want to stop the building of this temple, they will not prevail. They will be defeated. The temple is going to get rebuilt. <clears throat> and the promise comes in the form of a challenge. So this is the promise. Hey, you're not going to be defeated. This is the challenge. Uh, the challenge is the question in verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? You think you can stop this temple from being rebuilt? Okay. Who's the mountain? Again, you, you, if we're not told, you, you connect the dots. And we're supposed to connect the dots here to the previous visions. Specifically, vision three. Because... This vision, vision five, is actually in parallel to vision three in this very, very beautiful poetic structure of the night visions in Zechariah. So it, you go to vision three and you see, oh, it's really obvious who we're talking about here, like what the problem is. Because in vision three, it's the enemies of God's people. Uh, they're the nations of the world. They're the hostile nations to Israel. So think Egypt, think Assyria, 
Babylon, Persia. Think of the enemies to come, yet to come, Greece, Rome. The great mountain are the nations of the world hostile to God's people. Also, also, uh, the nations that are hostile to God's people, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. It's those who have the power to stop God's people from what they're doing. Sorry, I swallowed a mint and it went down the wrong tube. Hopefully it doesn't come out as I work it. Uh, Okay. Uh, And this includes the nations that are hostile to the church today. And so what is God's promise to his people? It is, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and that's echoing another Old Testament prophecy, specifically Isaiah 41, 15, which says that the Redeemer of Israel, listen to this, shall thresh the mountains and crush them and shall make the hills like dust. The promise to God's people about this mountain enemy, the nations of the world, is that they are going, the people of God are going to witness God's king conquer and lay waste to the nations that are persecuting God's people. And we here, 2022, we've witnessed this in history. We've seen this play out. The church came into existence, the people of God in the New Testament, the church came into existence in the first century in the wealthiest, strongest global superpower of the time, Rome. The church started off with 12 guys who were nobodies and a few women and no one else liked the church. The Jewish religious establishment and the Roman authority did not like the church. And as this church grows, just little by little, ever so little, the juggernaut Roman Empire does not like it and gets fed up. So they feed Christians to lions. They saw them in half. They confiscate their property. They impale them on pikes pour boiling oil, tar over them, and while they are still alive, light them on fire to serve as their outdoor lighting for Caesar's garden parties. The world's superpower hated the church and did what they could to grind them into the dust. And what is a pile of dust some 2,000 years later? Rome. You can go to Europe and you can see it. They're ancient artifacts, the rubble of its walls and stadiums and forums. And guess what's still here? The church. The church is still there in the Middle East and now it's here too, which means the church that was attacked by the world superpower Rome continued to grow and spread all over the world, crossing ethnic lines, social lines, political lines, and left Rome in its dust. Please hear me say this. I love America. And America is not Rome. But America is not a Christian nation. There are no Christian nations. And America is not the hope of the church. And the church will still be around after America disappears, should the Lord tarry. And after Russia and China and Iran and North Korea and Nigeria disappear, the church will remain. 
and for that matter, as the world powers look more like corporations than nations, the church will be around after Google and Apple and Facebook and Amazon disappear. The church will still be around after Hollywood disappears. Again, should the Lord tarry. The, tem- the temple will be rebuilt, not despite the obstacles. This temple will be rebuilt in the face of these obstacles. Because God's enemies will be defeated. So the building construction, the actual construction of this building, of this temple, that in and of itself is a conquest. Even though it doesn't look like the people of God are on a conquest, uh, that comes out in the second challenge, which is harder to see because it doesn't appear here as a challenge in the form of a question, but it should. And it is here. Hebrew does not use uh, question marks. You have to tell if it's a question from the context. Uh, and in verses, the, this passage that we're talking about, verses 6 to 10, it's actually two little sections that mirror each other. But they both, each section starts off uh, with a little intro. Uh, and then in the middle is this uh, challenge. They both have this challenge, and they're both in the form of a question. And just about every other translation other than our ESV, which is awesome, uh, other than our ESV translation, it translates verse 10 as a question. The NIV does this. The King James, the NASB, the Christian Standard, American Standard. There's, there's tons of translations that translate verse 10 this way. Who has despised the day of small things? And the small things is the people of God in their current situation in the world, facing the world powers. In the immediate context here in Zechariah, in Zechariah's day, it's this ragtag group of Jews, these exiles who just returned from captivity, trying to rebuild the temple. And God's people, they've been, at this point, they've been told that after returning from exile to Jerusalem, they would finally have the privilege of having a king in the line of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. They were promised this. But Persia will not allow Zerubbabel to claim the throne. And when the Persians get beat and displaced, it's the Greeks who rule the world, including Israel. And when the Greeks get beat and displaced, it's the Romans who rule the world, including Israel. So from the end of the Old Testament, which Zechariah, it's right there at the end, for the next 500 years till the New Testament, God's people are under the domination of a foreign power. Where is their king. Where is their kingdom? So this is a big, bright red flag uh, here at the end of the Old Testament. Okay, wait, how, how will God's kingdom be established with a small group of insignificant, poor, weak exiles? Like why, <laughs> wait, wait, why would we not despise the day of small things? And in the unfathomable, uh, infinite wisdom of God, this question is uh, a challenge not just to the world. It's also a challenge to the people of God, as in nothing has changed for the church. This is still the day of small things. The challenge is who will despise it? As in the church will always look weak to the world. If the church does not look insignificant to the world, if it doesn't look powerless, that is a red flag. 
that whatever that thing is, is not the church. When Jesus says to the church, you are the light of the world, he does not mean make the world a better place culturally, make the world a better place politically, make the, better, make the world a better place socially. The light of the world is the light of the gospel because the world is in darkness, and uh, the darkness of sin and heading for judgment and condemnation. And the only answer is the light of Jesus. The light of the world, the light is about building the temple of God, which is the church. And the only, the only thing, it is only the gospel that can engraft people into the temple and build up this church. And that does not, hear me say this too, that does not mean we downplay our role in the world as good neighbors. You're supposed to be a good neighbor. You are supposed to be out there in your individual work, in your individual jobs, in your individual lives, bringing peace to the city. We are all called to do that. It's not downplaying that role, but when Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world, he is not saying that he came into the world to make Israel a better place culturally, to make the Roman Empire a better empire culturally. After Jesus was in the world for some 33 years, he did not leave Israel a better place culturally. Despising the day of small things of the church, it also, you know, it also looks like adding gimmicks to worship. Uh, adding anything to worship that'll make it entertaining, make it funny, make it dramatic. We just get like, what is that? I mean, the world, y'all, the world gets what our worship is. Someone stands up and talks for too long, and it's always about Jesus, and we sing songs together, and we pray together, and we give away our money, lots and lots and lots of money. money. <laughs> Sometimes we pour water on people. And people in the church argue about who we should pour water on and whether we pour or we sprinkle or we dunk. And we eat pieces of tasteless crackers and itty-bitty sips of wine. And we say we're a family. We're a messed up, messy family. And we're accountable to each other in each other's messes. And we're going to take care of each other's junk. To the world, that is boring and weird, and it's judgmental. From a worldly perspective, like they're not crazy for thinking that. You're crazy for thinking that this, what we're doing right now, is worth giving up your Sunday morning every Sunday, every week of the year. If we deny, if we deny who we are and try to be something we are not, what we do is we, we expose our lack of faith in God who uses weak things that are despised by the world to build his temple. And if we're not conscious and we're not talking about this and doing that for self-reflection and challenging ourselves with this question, this question, this challenge is for us, we are going to do, we here, we're going to do this too. Because this is easy to do. Like that thing of, wait, the world does not like us. Okay, what then can we change for them to like us? 
When someone in the church accuses the church of not having enough cultural or political influence, not enough concern for social justice, that it's not entertaining enough, or that its message is too theological or it is too offensive, you've really got to be careful because that is what the world says about the church. And if we in the church despise the church for staking our claim simply to the gospel as the power of God and to salvation, and then we say, well, that's not enough. Like, that's too uninfluential. You've got to be careful because that is to mock the church as the world mocks the church. That's to mock the church as the devil mocks the church. But that's not what Jesus tells the church. At the end of the Bible, in Revelations, uh, ooh, Revelations, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus uh, tasks his apostle John to send seven letters to the seven churches. It's just this letter that's supposed to go out to all the churches. And Jesus tells one of the churches, one of two that is actually faithful, faithfully carrying out the ministry of the church. You know, out of these seven, there are only two that are actually Two that are actually doing it, and I catch them. And it's the church, one to, to the church of Philadelphia. He says this. Uh, he says, "I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name." Jesus does not say, "Listen, you need to do more." Uh, you need to get out there. You're, you're not big and successful, uh, and you haven't reached people because, you know, you're not. No, he says, I have opened the door. Keep being faithful, and I will bring people to you. So let's get into the world. Let, let, sorry, let's get into the word and preach the gospel to one another. And let's pray. And let's, let's baptize. And let's take communion and let's love one another and let's serve one another and let's live lives of truth and repentance in the world. That is the church fulfilling its purpose as the light of the world. In the second half of Zechariah, in this oracle that is parallel to this vision. It's, a, it's amazing. It would be great. I keep thinking it'd be great to have like a screen up here and kind of just map out the structure of Zechariah. It, it's, it's just, it's incredible. It can only be inspired by God because it is, it is so beautiful and awesome, uh, all that's going on there. But in the second half of Zechariah, there is this uh, oracle that is parallel to this vision. It's parallel to the first vision because those two are parallel to each other. And, and this is what it says. Uh, it says, we're told what the fulfillment of this day of small things is going to look like. And it's going to look like this, Zechariah 9.9. This is what we opened up with in the call to worship. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. On the last Sunday of his life, Jesus approaches Jerusalem. He knows for the last time. And the church now looks back to this moment and calls it Palm Sunday. And Jesus approaches, and everyone is lined up, and they're going crazy as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And they're, they're yelling, uh, Hosanna, which means save us. And they're saying, save us, son of David. Here's that king. Save us. 
And the irony of what we call Jesus' triumphal entry is he rides in on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Typically, like, Jesus isn't the only one who had a triumphal entry. Like, this is a thing. And typically, triumphal entries look like a king returning victorious from a battle. And he's on a mighty war horse uh, because he's just defeated his enemy and he ascends a throne uh, in glory, his throne in glory. Jesus has not won anything at this point. And in a matter of days, it seems like everything goes wrong and chaos ensues. His disciple and friend betrays him. Roman soldiers arrest him. His other friends abandon him. One friend denies him. The Jewish religious authorities and high priests try him, put him on trial in the middle of the night illegally, and convict him on false charges with no witnesses. The Jewish king Herod mocks him. Pilate makes a mockery of Roman justice and has him tortured and then leaves it to the people who now, seeing Jesus as weak, despise the day of small things and instead of yelling Hosanna, they yell, crucify him. And so Rome does. They parade him through the streets. They strip him naked. And at the end, Jesus does not ascend a throne. He ascends a cross. And in the face of all of these obstacles, Jesus is in control, building his temple through conquest. Jesus approaches on that donkey, proclaiming himself to be the king, declaring war, challenging the world power of Rome, challenging even his people, Israel. Who are you, O great mountain? Who has despised the day of small things? There are ancient Near Eastern texts dating back to 18th century B.C. This is old, 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 that describe a particular kind of animal that gets sacrificed in order to ratify, uh, make good on a covenant ceremony. So you'd have two, you'd have uh, a big, powerful overlord, emperor, king, and you'd have some kind of smaller uh, vassal, kind of regional king. And the way they would come and, and make a covenant and seal the deal with one another is they would sacrifice a particular kind of animal. Uh, and it's like signing on the dotted line. It's like shaking hands. Okay, this thing is for real. This seals the deal. Specifically, the animal that they sacrificed, uh, uh, what it symbolized was the curse. Like, hey, if you break covenant, you're going to be like this thing. You're going to be like this thing torn in two. So it would picture the curse that would overtake anyone who breaks the covenant, and the animal that they sacrificed to seal the covenant was specifically the colt of a donkey. Just like you read in Zechariah 9, just like you read in the Gospels, it was the, what they called the covenant donkey. But it's not the donkey. I think I went out there. It's not the donkey this time who is going to shed his blood to make a new covenant. It's the rider. The donkey is taking its rider, Jesus, to Jerusalem, to the cross. No one has more power than this king, Jesus. And at the end, Jesus let the world that is attacking him, he let them nail him to a cross. Jesus, the creator of the cosmos temple, allowed himself to be crucified to build his heavenly temple and save his people. He comes, to, he comes riding into Jerusalem to save and lay his enemies in the dust to the rejoicing of all of heaven. This is his rule, and it is dominion. It is his power. 
<clears throat> if you like uh, Major League Baseball, you probably know that the Astros lost their their all-star shortstop, Carlos Correa, in the offseason, and everyone was expecting it. We knew it was going to happen. We were all afraid it was going to happen. The question was going to be, like, what are we going to do? And in true Astros form, we did not make any big moves. Uh, what we did is we brought up one of our minor league players, <clears throat> a guy named, excuse me, here comes the mint, <clears throat> a guy named Jeremy Pena. Uh, in his first major league game, he did not get a hit. And he struck out twice, and he made a throwing error. In his second major league game on Friday, uh, he got his first hit. Uh, and not to the roar of the crowd because they were playing away in L.A., but to the roar of his teammates. Like your first major league hit, it is such a big deal. Some guys, some rookies, they never get that hit, and they're sent back down. I mean, this is like, this is, so many kids dream about this stuff, adults too. Um, and and Jeremy's pain, Jeremy Pena's parents, they were there to see it. And the on-field reporter finally locates uh, uh, Pena's parents in the seventh inning, seventh inning and, and she's asking them like how they're handling all the emotions. And you can just like, you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their faces. Like you, you, you hear it in their words, just how full of joy they are. They're just like happy, happy, happy. And during the interview, Pena, is, he's actually up to bat. So they're, they're, you know, they're cutting back and forth to him and the parents. It's just this incredible thing. And, and you, can see, you can see that their joy and their love is so infectious. Like the on-field reporter is just like smiling ear to ear of, of like they are just so, 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 so excited for this guy. Uh, and then there's a crack, crack of the bat. Jeremy, big swing. And the ball flies, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. Left center, going, going, gone. Over the fence for his first major league home run, and the camera is cutting back and forth from Jeremy to his parents. Jeremy to his parents, and the parents are going nuts. They are going berserk. They are jumping up and down, cheering so hard, and the mom is just, you're watching the ball fly, as, and they're cutting back, back and forth to the parents, and, and, they're, and, and she just, oh, 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 and, and the on-field reporter right there is doing the same thing, oh, oh, oh my God. and the broadcasters, the three broadcasters are doing the same thing, oh my goodness, oh, did you just see that, look at this, oh my, and, and they just, the, the broadcasters go on and on about how emotional they are of like how overwhelmed they are by emotion. And, and here's the crazy thing. Uh, the on-field reporter, those broadcasters, they're not Astros fans. Like they go on and on, uh, uh, like how amazing this is. And we caught the parents on. They're not Astros fans. The on-field reporter, the, the three announcers, they work for MLB. They're announcing a game involving the despised Astros, if you didn't know this, the Astros are the bad guys of baseball. At the beginning of the game, the broadcasters silenced their commentary to listen to the angel crowd boo Jose Altuve for his first at-bat. And yet here, at the end of the game, 
they are so overwhelmed and they can't help but be in awe of what this astro just did and share in the joy of it. As in, you may not be an Astros fan, you may not be a baseball fan, but when you see dominion, when you see power like that, bless those that you love, and you get to witness it, it is overwhelming for anyone who witnesses it and gets to be a part of it. Now, listen, Pena still has a ton to prove. Uh, This is not an application for worldly success uh, and power. It's an illustration of how power can bless. The world says Jesus is weak. We say, yeah, he became weak to save us who are truly weak. Our king has absolute control over absolute power and he wields it to lay down his life willingly in order to die for his enemies. For the sins of a people who are too weak to save themselves in order to make them his people. And Jesus defeating the nations right now, it looks like beating them with the gospel. It looks like making his enemies his family. And y'all, we've said this before, it is not an unchristian thing to say you have enemies. You do. The Christian thing is then to say, and you were supposed to love your enemies. The church is God's temple. It is the lampstand that is a burning fire. And we have power over the world powers. It is the gospel. Loved ones, let us overwhelm all our enemies with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ until he returns at the end in his triumphal return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. It is the power unto salvation. And we thank you that you have given it to the church We thank you that you have made us your church, that you have engrafted us into your family, that you have built us up stones on top of one another, built on the cornerstone, our Lord and our Savior. And we we shout grace, grace to it. Grace to your church, Lord. Give us grace to give grace to one another, to give grace to anyone in the world who wants it, even our enemies Though they persecute us, Lord, it is such a hard thing to pray and say, but you've taught us to pray, even though they kill us. Lord, what do we do but hold out love and grace? So we thank you for Jesus. We pray for everyone here, and we pray for our enemies, that they too would know the light of the world. In Christ's name that we pray, amen.